is Christian, and I am one of the uh, pastor elders here at Trinity, and it is my joy to preach the word this morning. Um, if you've been here for the last few weeks, you would know that we are in the middle uh, of a series. We're going through a series of sermons that is a little different to what we usually do here at Trinity. We uh, here at Trinity, we believe in expository preaching, which in simple terms means that we usually preach systematically through books of the Bible, right? So we'll take, uh, recently we went through the letter of Titus, and we took a few weeks to walk through it. Um, and that's what we usually do. That's our diet, if you will. Today, however, we're in the middle of a series that's a little bit different. As elders, we decided um, <clears throat> that we would go through the principles, through the, the doctrine, distinctives, and direction of our church uh, so that all of us could be in the same page. And we find it helpful and exciting, actually, to go through uh, what we usually uh, do during our journey, journey class. Um, now, last week, for example, Tim did a fantastic job taking a, potential, a potentially uncomfortable topic, like the topic of giving. Uh, but as he said, though we don't always talk about giving here at Trinity, we are not shy about giving because we believe the Bible instructs us to be cheerful givers. This morning, I too have a task before me that could be a little awkward. Um, as one of your pastors, I get to tell you about what the Bible has to say about pastors and how we should relate to them. But just like Tim last week, I'm not going to be shy about it. Here's why. Because I'm not going to be preaching myself this morning. If I were preaching myself, if I were uh, propping myself up here, that would be in trouble. I'm not preaching myself. I'm preaching Scripture. And my joy is to preach what the Bible says. I want you to know, though, that preaching this message and preparing for it has been very humbling because it is a reminder of the fact that the only reason I get to stand behind this pulpit is not because I think I'm great, but because I think and believe that Christ is great. And in His grace, for whatever reason, He's called me, and I get to tell you about Him today. And so, um, we're going to be talking about pastor elders. The passage we're reading from this morning is part of the first epistle of Peter. And so for the sake of context, I thought I would um, give you a couple of pointers, or I would share a couple of things that we know about this letter. First, we know that this letter was written by Peter, one of the apostles. And here, Peter is speaking to the early church, a church that is scattered all over the Roman Empire. We also know that at that time, the church was facing persecution and suffering. So Peter's speaking to a suffering church. He's preparing them for suffering. In the previous chapter, if you read it, uh, Pe uh, Peter is encouraging Christians in the face of persecution by teaching them to expect suffering and to glorify Christ in the midst of it. So this morning, we're going to jump to chapter 5, and we're going to read five verses. I want to read verse 1. And then we will get into the message. It says, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I come before you this morning, Lord, humbled by the privilege, Father, that I get to preach the word today. Lord, I also am aware of the fact that I am but a man, Lord. And so I pray that as I preach this morning, that you um, would speak to me, Lord. I pray that if there is anything that I say that does not align to the truth of Scripture, anything that comes from my own understanding, anything that comes from my own flesh, Lord, I pray that it would fall down and be forgotten. I pray that you would make us a church 
Father, that knows to, to hear with, with gospel ears, to read with scripture eyes, Father, that we would be able to understand and discern what your word is saying. And so, Lord, I pray that you would be glorified this morning through the preaching of your word. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Amen. So this morning, uh, my first point is this. God provides pastors for his church. In the passage we just read, the one verse we read, Peter says this, he says, so I exhort the elders among you. And so what is obvious, or, or what I want to point out, is that Peter assumes that all the churches that will receive this letter will, you know, that in these churches there will be elders among their membership. He does not have to wonder. He does not have to ask the question, because he knows that from the beginning of the church, God has provided elders to lead his people. For the sake of clarity, I want to mention uh, something that might be obvious to some of you, but not all. But here's, it, here's what I want to say. The Bible uses the term elder and pastor and overseer interchangeably. Here at Trinity, you will often hear us introduce ourselves as pastor elders. Now, we're aware that this sounds a little clunky, right? Whenever I say, I am a pastor elder, I know it sounds a little clunky, a little weird, if you will. But we find it so helpful to repeat it because it reminds us that the office of elder or pastor is the same thing. Actually, I'm going to ask the elders. They don't know this, but I'm going to ask the elders, would you guys please stand? Church, because I want you to look at these guys. And I want you to know these are the elders and pastors that the Lord has provided for you. Thank you, guys. You may, see, you may be seated. In this local church, Trinity Community Church, we have six elders. And even though Tim and I are the only ones who are on staff, and we're the only ones that work here full time, we are not any more pastors than the rest of the guys. Rick, Richard, Austin, and Bobby, they are elders and pastors here at Trinity. And this is why I find it helpful that we call ourselves pastor elders, because if not, depending where you're coming from, you might be tempted to assume that because Tim and I work here full-time, we are the pastors, and they are only elders. The Bible doesn't allow that. In Scripture, elders are pastors. Pastors are elders. So I also want you to notice that even if you know these guys, if you've been here at Trinity for any length of time, you know us, and you would know that we have very different giftings, right? We are very different in the way that the Lord has gifted us. So uh, you will often see me or Tim preaching here on Sunday more often than not. But again, this does not make us any more important than the other guys that just stood up. And so I just want you to see that these are the men that the Lord has provided for this church. Now, since saying pastor elder is kind of a mouthful, from now on, as I preach, I will be using these terms interchangeably. But they mean the same thing. Now, I want you to notice that Peter starts this portion of the text by identifying himself as a fellow elder. Peter was not only an apostle, one of the 12 disciples, but he also worked as an elder in the church. He was one of the elders of the early church. He says that he too is a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that he was an eyewitness because, as you may remember, he and other disciples bailed on Jesus pretty soon after he was captured. They ran away. And yet, the Lord called them to be an elder in his church. Now, with that said, Peter did witness firsthand the majority of Christ's ministry on earth. 
including the suffering in the garden and the agony leading to his arrest. But here, Peter calls himself a witness in the same sense that you and I might talk about bearing witness to the sufferings of Christ. Meaning that we proclaim it to be true. Peter identifies himself as an elder, not to pull rank or to make himself sound important, but as a way to encourage other elders. I do want you to notice, as as you read this passage, I want you to notice the tone of the letter. Because it is very pastoral. He's not propping himself up. But as Peter identifies himself as an elder, this leads us to the question, what is an elder? What is a pastor? What does the Bible have to say about it? And so, first, I want to answer this question by quoting one of my favorite theologians, John Owen, who describes the role of a pastor this way. He says, The pastor is the servant of Christ and the steward of the mysteries of God, entrusted with the care of souls. Again, Notice Owen's language to describe the role of a pastor. It's not grandiose. It uses words like servant or steward. A pastor is a servant. A pastor is a man called by God and confirmed by his local church that has been entrusted with the responsibility of caring for the church. A pastor is a man that has received both an internal and an external call. By this, I mean that a pastor should have an internal sense or a desire to pursue ministry. But this desire should also be confirmed by the local church. So when I was five years old, for whatever reason, I was that weird kid that wanted to be a pastor. As I grew older, I pretty quickly got rid of that, you know, for some reason decided I wanted to be a vet. And then in my last year of high school, I I felt a sense from the Lord again that I was called to be a pastor. But you see, that desire to be a pastor is not enough if it's not confirmed by the body. So this leads me to the question, who then can be a pastor? Thankfully, Scripture tells us the qualifications of a pastor in a couple of different places. And so um, both in 1 Timothy 3 and in 1 Titus 1, we see detailed lists of qualifications for the office of pastor or elder. Just recently, you may remember, we did a series on the letter of Titus. And during that series, Josiah, happy birthday, by the way. I don't know where he is, um, but happy birthday, Josiah. He's what? He's serving the kids. Look at what a guy. Um, But look at this. Um, Instead of unpacking every one of these qualifications, I'm going to read them, and I'm going to invite you to go to our website and go back to the series on Titus and listen to Josiah's sermon because he did such a great job. But in way of summary, here are the qualifications Scripture gives us for the role of the pastor. Paul, in both of these letters, says that a pastor is to be blameless, a husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, hospitable, humble, gentle, not a drunkard, not quarrelsome, not a new believer. He must be grounded in Scripture, and he must be able to teach. I want you to notice that most of these qualifications, all of them but the last one, are focused on the character of the pastor and not his gifts. Unfortunately, our culture does the opposite. They find gifting, they prop up a man who has no character, and that's dangerous. Now, I really wish I could expound on this, but in short, a pastor, the office of pastor, is reserved for qualified men. I wish I had the time to unpack this 
And in fact, all the reasons we believe a faithful reading of Scripture leads us to say this. I wish we had the time to take the, you know, the, to, 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 to spend the time in like the nuanced conversation that this requires. Um, but because this goes beyond what we're trying to, to achieve this morning, I want to invite you, if you're here for the first time and, and you have questions about this, as elders, we want to meet with you. We'd love to sit down with you and explain why it is that we believe this. Now, as you hear this, as you hear me saying that the office of pastor is reserved for qualified men, you might be tempted to only hear part of it. If you are listening with 2023 American ears, when we say that the office of elder is reserved for qualified men, you might be hearing uh, that as an exclusion of women. When in reality, what this says doesn't exclude just women, but also any man that is not qualified. I know this can be a controversial topic. So if you're new here, if you're new here again, I want to ask you, please, Talk to one of us elders. We'd love to grab coffee with you and discuss these things. But before I do move on, I want to make up a couple, I mean, I want to make a couple of clarifying remarks. First of all, here at Trinity, we believe that both men and women are created in the image of God. And that while they are equal in worth, in dignity, and in value, they also have complementary roles that are not interchangeable. Right? We see that in nature. We see that at home. Men and women, God has given us beautiful, God-glorifying roles that are uh, complementary, though not interchangeable, as much as culture may tell us otherwise. Secondly, here at Trinity, we believe that the participation of both men and women is essential to the well-functioning of the church and to the fulfillment of the Great Commission. This does not take women out of the question at all. Because of this, we affirm both that there should be equal involvement in the life of the ministry of the church, while also believing that our roles are complementary and not interchangeable. So hear me out. This does not mean in any way that men are better, smarter, or godlier than women. That would be silly to say. If you know any of our wives, you would quickly find out that's just not the case. Jesus exemplified this in his ministry. In the sense that while he had 12 disciples who were all men, women played a very important part of his ministry. It's the same case in the book of Acts, where we see the involvement of women as foundational to the early church. So whenever we say that, that we believe that the office of elder is, is reserved for qualified men, that in no way implies that the voices of women are not important in the church. We need you, ladies, and we want you to know that. We love you, we need you, we respect you. Now, again, I want to say something that I want to be crystal clear on. Though I consider it to be a blessing to be a pastor, I am very aware that I'm a pastor not because there's anything special about me. If anything, I am convinced that the Lord called me into ministry, not because I'm strong, not because I'm godly, but precisely because I'm weak. My position as a pastor allows me to spend time in the Word, in the study of the Word, in a way that I could never do if I had other responsibilities. And so I truly believe that God called me to be a pastor, not because I'm strong, but because I'm weak. And in His grace, He called me. Now, now that we've discussed what a pastor is, let's talk about what a pastor does. And for that, I want us to read verses 2 and 3, where Peter says, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you 
exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So if pastor is the title, shepherding is the job description. In short, a pastor's job is to pastor the church. What do I mean by that? Well, here Peter helps us to see the duty of the pastor is to shepherd the flock of God. He undoubtedly has in mind the task that Christ gave him as an elder when he said to him, Peter, feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Then tend my sheep. Three times, Jesus asked Peter to care for his sheep. Caring for his sheep is precious to Christ. This calling is not unique to Peter. This is language that we see all over Scripture. The language of shepherd is all over the Bible. Christ, for example, example is often referred to as the good shepherd and the chief shepherd, as we see in verse 4. God often called shepherds, like actual shepherds that cared for sheep, the animals, he often called them to take care of his people. We see this, for example, with Moses, who went from caring uh, for his father-in-law's Jethro's sheep to caring and shepherding the people of God. Same thing with David. He was a shepherd in Bethlehem, and he went from Bethlehem to shepherding the nation of Israel as their king. But ultimately... There is only one chief shepherd, and that is Jesus Christ. So pastors, elders, um, are what we might call under-shepherds. Pastors are under under the authority of the great shepherd, Jesus Christ, who holds the ultimate authority. Now, in our modern context, sheep aren't really a big part of our lives, right? At least for most of us, I know some of you guys have goats. I know there's, you know, the Williamses do have a sheep, right? So I I cannot tell you this from experience, but from what I've read and from what I've heard, and you can correct me, sheep are not bright. They're messy. They are prone to getting lost, and they are very vulnerable to predators. So keeping sheep is actually hard work. Here's the thing. The Bible repeatedly calls us sheep. It describes us, the people of God, as sheep, which would be actually insulting if I didn't know my own heart. I am a sheep. I mean, this describes me. So God knows we are weak. The God who knows our weakness kindly provides shepherds for us to help us care for us. So the duty of the pastor, then, is to exercise oversight over the local church. This can be broken into a few different responsibilities. Number one, the pastor cares for his sheep through the preaching of the word and through upholding the teachings of Scripture. This is our main task. The preaching of the word, pointing others to Christ, is the main task of the pastor. But the pastor also cares for his sheep by protecting them from false teachers. Remember, the pastor had a staff with a hook, right? And so we, they had a staff, and they had a, what's the other word? I'm blanking. A rod and a staff. Thank you. Right? So the rod was to protect the sheep from, from, from predators. The, the, the staff was to bring their sheep, to, to, to have his sheep follow him. It is the, the, the job of the pastor to, ca- to care for his sheep by protecting them from false teachers, which is why here at Trinity we emphasize so much the importance of doctrine. We want you to know your word because we believe that it protects you. Number three, 
The pastor cares for his sheep by equipping them for the work of ministry. People are often tempted to think that pastors should do the work of ministry in the life of the church. People love outsourcing the work of ministry to pastors, right? And sometimes they think, you know what, we pay the pastor to do the work of ministry. When the Bible tells us that the job of the pastor is to equip believers for the work of ministry. Here at Trinity, if the only people who are doing the work of ministry is the elders, we are failing you and robbing you from the blessing that it is to do the work of ministry. We need you for this church to grow, for this church to thrive, for this church to do what we've been mandated to do. We need you. So thank you, for example, to all the folks that participated in our Teaching the Word class a couple of weeks ago. We really thank you for that. We're, we're excited that you want to be used by the Lord in ministry. Next, the pastor cares for his sheep by nurturing the spiritual development of the, development of the church. Now you might be thinking, well, Christian, all those things sound awesome. That's really cool that pastors get to do that. And, you know, I think most of us would, would agree that these things are things we need. Unfortunately, if you, like me, have been in the church for any long, length of time, you, knew, you know sorry, that pastors don't always do the things that they should do. You know that pastors don't always do the things in the way that they should do them. Pastors sometimes disappoint us. You know, a LifeWay, a LifeWay uh, research study last year found that only 23% of Americans consider pastors to be a trustworthy source of wisdom. That's heartbreaking. And you may think, well, Christian, that's in America. That doesn't represent the church. Well, in the church, things aren't much better. Only 31% of American Christians find pastors to be trustworthy, which is heartbreaking. You know, as 21st century Americans, we already struggle with the idea of authority. It's a challenge for us. And we are also very cynical about leadership in the church. And sadly, in many cases, it is for good reason. We all know of respected men. Some of them maybe even seen as heroes who acted foolishly and ended up hurting people and damaging the witness of the church. I personally have served under men that I loved and re- that I love and respect so much, only later to find out that they were living a double life. We all know stories, whether we have experienced them firsthand or because we saw a documentary or listened to a podcast, but we all know of pastors that have failed the church. Examples of that pastors, unfortunately, abound. Thankfully, Peter knew that there would be those who served or who pursued ministry for the wrong reasons. And he wants to warn us about them. So in verses 2 and 3, we see three reasons, uh, three wrong reasons to be a pastor. And then in verse 4, he will give us the, the actual motivation to be a pastor. So I want to read verses 2, 3, and 4. And here I want you to see that the motivation of a pastor is not an earthly crown, but a heavenly one. Verse 2 says this, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So here Peter gives us three bad motivations for ministry. The first one being leading out of duty. 
right? He says, he says um, that we should shepherd the flock of God um, that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly. You see that? Peter is telling us that, that uh, here that pastoring merely out of a sense of duty is a bad reason to serve. The virtue of duty in itself is not bad. The problem is that it is a poor substitute for love. Peter says to, Peter tells them, sorry, not to exercise oversight under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. You know, if I come to my wife, Megan, with a bouquet of flowers, after she tells me how much I spent on them, um, <laughs> I'm just going to have, she asks how much you spend on those. I'm kidding, she doesn't do that. Um, but if I tell her, I'm bringing you these flowers, because apparently that's what a husband should do. There's no joy in that. Let me tell you, it won't bless her if that's what I'm doing. Now, if I were to bring her flowers, not because I have to, but because I love her, because I want to, man, that changes everything. Duty is a virtue, but only when it is hand in hand with love. We want pastors that aren't just willing to do the work, because a shepherd should be eager to do the work out of love. You know, the cross was a, a result not of Christ's duty, but of his love for us. He didn't have to, but he did it anyways, because he loves us. Number two, leading for personal gain is a terrible reason to be in ministry. Another wrong reason that is unfortunately way too common is a desire for personal gain. We have good reason to believe that at least some of the elders Peter is addressing in this letter would have been receiving a salary or a stipend. And we know from passages like 1 Corinthians 9.14 and 1 Timothy 5.17 and 18 and Galatians 6.6 6, that it is appropriate for an elder to receive compensation. Here, though, Peter is specifically addressing those whose motivation for ministry, whose sole motivation for ministry is personal gain and greed. God has a problem with those that serve themselves by serving the people of God. As we saw before in the qualifications, not being a lover of money is actually a qualification for elders. Unfortunately, examples abound of people who struggle with this. Um, and, you know, with, with this, whenever they're put in a position of authority. I honestly don't know what Peter would do if he were to turn the, you know, a Christian TV channel today and if he saw televangelists that use a cheap, distorted version of the gospel for their own gain. I don't know what Peter would say. You know, you know those people I'm talking about, those who promise things that the Bible doesn't promise? Those that dangle the carrot of health and wealth in front of those who are vulnerable and then turn around and live in opulence all in the name of God? Let me tell you, one day they will give an account to God himself. You know, I knew of a pastor personally who knew one of his congregants had an electronic shop that sold TVs. And so one day he approached them and said, hey, let's make a deal. How about instead of you giving to the church, you give me a TV, then you don't have to give for the next year. It's gross. And Peter is warning us against those who are motivated by the question, what's in it for me? 
Charles Spurgeon once said, the true pastor is not concerned with his own wealth and power, but with the glory of God and the well-being of his people. And this leads me to the next wrong motivation for ministry, which is leading to gain power. Another bad motivation for ministry is the desire of power. You may remember two weeks ago we talked about service, and we looked at the story of James and John, the sons of thunder. You might remember that right after Jesus tells them that he is headed to the cross, that as they're going to, the, to Jerusalem, he is going to be murdered. He's going to be mocked. He's going to be killed. And that three days later, he would rise again. I mean, Jesus is telling them the greatest news in history. And James and John go like, cool, but can you do us a favor? Can you put us at the right or your left? You know, can we sit at your right or at your left, right? Because James and John at that moment, they were blinded by their desire of, of greatness. They wanted to make much of themselves. We talked about the fact that often a worldly desire for greatness blinds us to the gospel. You might remember that Jesus, in that story, patiently corrects them and says to them, this is in Mark 10, uh, Mark 10 verses 42 and 44. He says to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whosoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you, you must be slave of all. I'm sure, Peter, I'm sure that as Peter is writing these words, the words of Jesus were ringing in his ears. The man we all, knew, we, we all know was hot-headed and impulsive is now passing along the same message that Jesus gave him to other elders. I think he probably knew that we would be tempted to use power or to, to, to use ministry to gain power. When he tells us not to be domineering, he's using the same word Jesus used, which is the idea of lording over, over others. You see, as prevalent as greed is in some churches, the temptation of being domineering might be worse. Because, you know, being domineering and controlling is easier to hide than your personal jet or your Ferrari. The abuse of power is unfortunately prevalent. And our broken hearts Crave that power. What Peter is telling us, there's no room for that in the heart of a pastor. You see, a controlling or domineering elder, a bully or abrasive pastor, that's an oxymoron. That does not exist. We are under shepherds, under authority. We don't get to be domineering. As under shepherds, we are called to emulate Jesus, the chief shepherd who gave his life for others. We're called to emulate his leadership. Because you see, our Savior is gentle and lowly in heart. In the Old Testament, God repeatedly describes himself as patient, as slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And as pastors, we too should strive to be like him. David Strain, a preacher, puts it this way. He says, Peter wants men who are gentle without being weak. He wants men who are patient without being indifferent. He wants men who are flexible without surrendering principle. He wants men who will be examples to the flock of basic godliness. Peter calls pastors to be examples to the flock. 
And can I be honest with you? This can feel like a crushing burden to be an example to the flock. If by this Peter means that a pastor should be perfect in his leadership and in order to be an example to the flock, this is a crushing weight that we cannot bear. The good news is that even as elders, even as we fail, we get to be examples even in our failure by pointing others to the grace of Christ. Because, spoiler alert, we will fail you. Not intentionally, not on purpose, but I know myself. And I know that as, uh, can I be honest with you? Our elder team here at Trinity is the healthiest elder team I've ever been a part of. And yet, it is a group of men. And so we will fail you and disappoint you. And for that, I want you to hear this. We're sorry. We don't mean to. And we will do our best not to. But you know, we even then, we can seek to be an example, even as we fail, by confessing our sin and by resting in the grace of Christ. Church, in short, if I can summarize everything I just said about a pastor, about the, the, the duty of a pastor, a pastor should strive to be humble as he glorifies Christ leading and caring for his church. That's it. Then verse 4 leads us to the last but real motivation, the one that Peter is telling us, this is why you'd get to do it. And that is the unfading crown of glory. That is the only right motivation for the pastor. So if duty, wealth, and power are not good motivations for ministry, what should, what should motivate a pastor? And Peter answers this question in verse 4 when he says, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You see, as pastors, we are not motivated by the things of this world. Not because they're too big, but because they're too little. I want you to see that Peter is saying something without saying it. Peter is saying that our pastors are just like everyone else in that our motivation for ministry is the same motivation for every believer. And that is the unfading crown of glory. Pastors are motivated by a, by a reward. It's just not an earthly one. The words... Uh, translating as an unfading crown of glory in the Greek, actually describe a wreath of amaranth, which is a flower that doesn't wither. Because see, this, this crown of glory we're speaking about is something that doesn't rust, doesn't wither, does not disappear. This wreath, this crown symbolizes the eternal reward that God has prepared for his people. Not for pastors only, but for his people. This crown is not a sign of wealth, but it represents the full manifestation of God's love, grace, and glory in the lives of his redeemed people. When Jesus comes back, the chief shepherd, he will return to establish his kingdom and bring an end to sin and suffering. And at that time, he will reward his faithful followers with the unfading crown of glory that signifies their victory over sin and their complete transformation into his likeness. Whenever we speak of a crown, we're not speaking of earthly wealth. 
that crown and fading crown of glory is that one day we will all be made like Jesus, that our sin will be done, that our brokenness will be no more. We will be like Christ. By that I mean in his glory, not, not, in, not in his position as God, obviously. When Jesus comes back, he will establish his kingdom and bring end to sin and suffering, like I said. And I want to get, I'm near the end of my message, but I want you to see verse 5. Actually, ver- verses 5 and, and, and 6. And I want you to see that the cult of humility is both for pastors and for the sheep. It says here, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. This younger, this word younger might mean in age, but also in how new you are to the faith. It says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. So now that Peter has exhorted his pastors, or or, or pastors, to imitating Christ, to serving their congregations with love and humility, Peter now encourages the congregation in how they should relate to their pastors. And this too can be summarized in one word, that word being humility. In his commentary of this passage, Edmund Clowney says that mutual submission is the key to the pattern of life in Christ's church. And I believe this is to be the case. You see, one of the paradoxes of the Christian life is that our freedom is found not in doing whatever the heck we want. But our freedom is found, true freedom is found in submission to God. And a life of submission to God also includes a mutual submission with other believers. And there is when we find joy. And there is when we find Christ. Galatians 5.13 and 14 says this, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourselves. I've got to confess um, that it is a bit awkward to say this. It might come across as self-serving, but the way that we are called to relate to our pastors is by submitting to their leadership. Now, we don't do this because they're great, but because Christ is. We don't submit to elders because they are always right. Trust me, we're not, (laughs) but because Christ is. We don't submit because they are smarter, but because it glorifies God. We submit to our elders because and only if they submit to Christ first. Notice submission does not mean giving license to abuse, to overreach, or to misdirection. Much damage has been done in the church by men who abuse their position as pastors to excuse the inexcusable. There are those who have disqualified themselves from themselves from ministry who try to hold on to ministry by twisting scripture. And this is the exact opposite of what a pastor should do. So Paul's uh, Peter's I'm sorry uh, call is not to authoritarianism but a call to humility for everyone yeah. starting with the elders. He tells us he tells us and he says not just the young people but to all 
He tells us to clothe ourselves with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I don't know about you, but the clothes I'm wearing this morning are quite different to the clothes I was wearing yesterday while I was coaching a soccer team. I imagine your outfit yesterday was very different to your outfit today. And your outfit tomorrow, as you go to work, it will be very different to what you're wearing today. This is because every morning we choose what we're going to wear depending on the weather, depending on the day of the week, or the physical demands of the day, right? You know, when it comes to life, we also get to choose what we will clothe ourselves with. And Peter is telling us, choose humility. He's telling us, clothe yourself with humility. So let me ask you this morning, are you serving today? Choose humility. Are you teaching today? Choose humility. Are you talking to a brother or a sister that might uh, get on your nerves? Choose humility. Are you working under a difficult boss tomorrow? Choose humility. Are you welcoming people at the door this morning? Choose humility. And maybe an umbrella because it's been raining like crazy in Tidal this past week. The question is, what does this humility look like? The submission Peter is calling us to is not to become doormats, but to actively join the work of ministry while following the direction of the elders, which should always be in line with the Word of God. Humility looks like counting others as more important than ourselves. Humility looks like giving others the benefit of the doubt and not assume the worst, or to not assign motives to their actions. Humility looks like sacrificing our preferences for the sake of the gospel. Humility means resisting the enemy. In James 4, 6, James quotes the same proverb as Peter does here. That, you know, when, when he says that God uh, opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, James quotes the same passage. And he connects it, he connects submission to, uh, to God with resisting the devil. If you keep reading and, uh, the rest of chapter 5, Peter does the same thing. Humility helps us resist the devil. Pride opens the door. When we choose humility, we are shutting the door in the face of our enemy that is sprawling, seeking, uh, seeking for those who he can devour. Dane Ortland says this. He says, all true humility starts before God himself then trickles out into our other relationships. And in the other direction, uh, here's a sobering thought, all pride before it is ever directed to other people is first directed to God. So humility and mutual submission are indeed the key pattern to the life of the church. And so let me ask you this morning, is this you? Does this humility reflect you? Does this humility reflect the way that you engage with others? Does this humility reflect the way that you engage or speak of your elders? Does this reflect your heart? I need to ask a question, does this humility reflect my own heart? I mentioned at the beginning the awkwardness of this passage for me as a pastor. So I want to close this morning by pointing you not to the elders, not to me, but to Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep. I want to share two things that I know are true. First, as pastors, there is one thing we know for sure, and this is it. We will fail you at some point. Not intentionally, 
but we are men in need of grace. We will mess up. If you don't believe it, just ask our wives. But here's the second truth I want you to remember this morning. Even when we do fail you, please know that the chief shepherd never will. So never let the failure of any man, the failure of any person, keep you from our good Lord. Our Lord Jesus is a kind shepherd. Can I ask you this morning, do you know him? Do you know this gentle and lowly shepherd? Some of us might be tempted to see him as a stern, legalistic boss, ruler, oppressor, but he isn't. If you read scripture, it reflects that gentle and lowly shepherd. Dane Orland again says this about Jesus. He says, the point in saying that Jesus is lowly is that he is accessible. For all his resplendent glory and dazzling holiness, his supreme uniqueness and otherness, otherness, no one in human history has ever been more approachable than Jesus Christ. Church, this is great news. It's great news for those of us that know him. This is great news for you who feel far from him this morning because of besetting sin. Run to him. He will give you grace. This is great news for you if you're feeling down and overwhelmed. Run to him because you can come to him for strength and comfort. This is for you who may be feeling lonely today. Run to him because he tells you that he is always with you. The author of Hebrews speaks of how approachable Christ is when he says in Hebrews 4, 14 and 16, through 16, he says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Church, run to him. Do you need grace today? Run to him. Now, this is also great news for those of you who might not know him. So I ask again this morning, do you know him? If not, what are you waiting for? Do you know that Jesus is not only the great shepherd, but the great shepherd also became a sacrificial lamb? Isaiah 53, 6 says that all like sheep have gone astray. This is speaking of us. We have all gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. We have turned our backs on God. We were lost. And on our own way, We were headed to death. Paul actually says that we were objects of God's wrath. That in our sin and our brokenness, we were objects of God's wrath. Because of our sin and rebellion against the creator of the universe, we deserved death. But the shepherd became the lamb when he offered his life at the cross and paid for our sins so that we would be saved. Come to him this morning. There is nothing you have to bring to him to be accepted but your messy self and your broken heart. Come to him. He will never reject those that come to him for help. Church, at this time, would you stand with us and worship 
our great shepherd.